what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host. For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In the Psychologist's Chair with host Dr. Raymond Hamden. Our program will feature global guests joining Dr. Hamden for a psychological interview. And through their experiences, you will explore the human depth of understanding their purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Raymond Hamden. Hello, everyone. You're in the Psychologist's Chair. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. And today, our guest, Semine Shaheem, who's a Ph.D. candidate in cross-cultural psychology. She's an assistant professor of psychology where she teaches a wide range of courses, including introductory psychology, cross-cultural psychology, social psychology, pathologies, as well as industrial and organizational psychology. From the Middle East is her origin, Iran in particular, but she is a Canadian citizen and she's taught in the United Kingdom, United Arab Emirates, and many other places around the world. Semine Shaheem, welcome, and thank you for being in the psychologist chair today. Thank you. Pleasure being here. You must have a lot of work being yeah. a cross-cultural psychologist. What a unique opportunity. Yes, for sure. Uh, across cultures, across disciplines, uh, looking at different topics from a cross-cultural point of view. And it's a relatively recent uh, subject, I would say, a recent meaning in the last couple of decades that we've taken an interest in the fact that Theories from a predominantly Western point of view need to be also analyzed and examined across cultures to see whether those truths hold up across uh, different societies, different cultural systems, as well as the similarities between them. So not just the differences amongst us, but also what what do we have in, in common with each other. Being of an Iranian origin. Did you grow up in Iran? No, unfortunately, I didn't. I grew up in the diaspora, so in the United States and in Canada and um, in the UK as well. Yeah. Where in the United States were you? In California, in Orange County. So around the Los Angeles area? Yes, yes, yes. And you stayed there until when? Well, on and off, uh, I, from around, let's say, about three, four years when I was younger, uh, before my teenage years, and then I went back uh, to do my undergrad degree at uh, a university there in Southern California before transferring to the UK. How did you get a Canadian citizenship? Well, after the revolution, after the 1979 revolution in Iran, my family left uh, and we went directly to Canada. Uh, that was the first base of entry and we lived there for four or five years and we are privileged enough to get the nationality uh, living and working in Canada. You sound American when you speak, but you're British educated. Yes, I know. It's a combination of many different influences. You're cross-cultural in yourself. Uh, yes, I am. Yes. What a psychology you must be. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> so living in the UK as well as the United States, some people say, we can't place your accent. And I guess when they can't place your accent, they ask, are you Canadian? You know, that's the safe. <laughs> the <laughs> that's the safest place to be placed. To, right, to be asked. But uh, yeah, I guess I tend to have a continental accent, as they as they call it. Yeah, it is certainly cross-cultural in itself. But you got interested in cross-cultural psychology, probably not by accident, but by design. Definitely. You are cross-cultural in yourself. Yeah, I agree. Um, I went through living in so many different cultural contexts, experiencing, interacting from with people from so many different backgrounds, right from, you know, being a child, uh, studying at elementary school in Canada, and uh, let's say being at a friend's house, watching the way in which my friends interacted with their parents in comparison to the way I was allowed or not allowed to talk or interact with my family, the kinds of food that people ate, uh, the, the way in which study habits, leisure habits. So I've been looking at differences as well as similarities, as you mentioned, through my own life and experiences, as well as being an assistant professor of psychology in the UK, looking at international students studying in a context which is different than their own, and how they adjust to a new environment, how they adapt, what changes in their cultural identity. That was always fascinating for me too. What's your doctoral dissertation topic? Um, it was lo looking at uh, the way in which the cultural identity of students from Gulf countries transforms, perhaps, and to, to what extent it might transform as a result of the acculturation process. So being a sojourner, an international student for a period of time, living in a country different than their own, when they're adapting and acculturating to another culture, uh, to a second, maybe a third culture, what changes in them and what remains the same? More interesting than that is what happens when they go back home? So the repatriation of these students, because they've come with an intention to return, that's the definition of a sojourner. But they've changed, and now they have to take the, those changes and find a place for those changes once they return to their country of origin. Reentry seems to be more difficult than becoming an expat. I found that as well, yes, because when we go back, we think we're going back home. This is where I've been born and bred. Shouldn't be any different. We're not anticipating the reentry shock or the repatriation uh, challenges that would be experienced. But it does happen. We're no longer the same person we left at the age of 18 or 19. Lots of changes have taken place. And sometimes our family and friends are not very open to those changes. Even though you don't look too Iranian, whatever Iranians are supposed to look like, yeah. there is a Mediterranean look to you. Did that ever cause you trouble? Did your name ever cause you problems growing up in the West, especially in light that Iran and the West had somewhat of a tense relationship? Yes, it was interesting because although I come from that background and I do look uh, Middle Eastern or Mediterranean, as you've said, I never uh, felt from one particular location. So I, I always felt an amalgamation of many different places. So if I was with a certain a group of people from a cultural background, I didn't feel very different. But I think the other people would notice the differences. And when they would ask me certain questions like, 
you know, what language do you speak at home or what kind of food do you eat at home, then suddenly my differences would be highlighted and I would be reminded of those differences. Or random acts of discrimination or racism, which we've all encountered, and this is not to generalize with the American public or with the British public. I've had some of my best friends are American and British. But random acts of racism... You know, you're trying to get a parking space and so is somebody else, but you get there first. I'm a good driver, by the way, as well. <laughs> I'm not bad at driving. And I get I get in there first and they say, go back to your country, you know, or sentences like that. Your or, country, you mean California. Yeah, exactly. I'm in my country. Mm. Where do you want me to exactly. go? Uh, so the little things like that would be, I would be reminded of my country of origin or my heritage. I haven't actually ever lived in Iran. Um, and it, I would reflect upon how much your exterior or your appearance can ha- can f- help form an impression for others. Yeah. How fluent are you in Farsi? I am fluent, thanks to my mother and father, uh, Dr. Hamdan. I am fluent in Farsi. Uh, There's always room for improvement, certainly. But every Saturday when all the other kids were out playing, I was sent to uh, Farsi classes. So two, three hours every Saturday afternoon, I was sent to learn reading and writing. Uh, No matter where we lived, this was a constant. So to make sure that I learned uh, Farsi. So you actually got to read... Romy and all the other wonderful writers. Yes, definitely. I'm more comfortable reading Rumi in English, funnily enough, but Rumi in Farsi is a whole other experience and it's transcended, you know, on another level. Beautiful, beautiful poetry. Yeah. Do you enjoy it as well yourself? Well, I've not had the opportunity to read in a foreign language, but from what I understand from those who are linguists. Yes that Arabic and Farsi are actually quite expressive, and some will even say that Farsi is more poetic even. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful language. Even though those two languages might not be the prettiest mm-hmm. to listen to, mm-hmm. when you know the meaning of the words, it brings out a beauty. Right. And it may not be one of the romantic languages, but it has such a deep, rich influence in its value for words that unless you understand that culture and can think in that language, you actually can lose the essence of the translation. Absolutely. Their culture and language are mutually embedded in many ways. Yes. It's and like it's like uh, Khalil Gibran, yes. who wrote both in Arabic and in English. Mm-hmm. And as fluent as he was in English, those who are fluent in Arabic reading would say that it was far richer. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they enjoy it, I think, uh, reading it much more in, in Arabic than they do in English. But nevertheless, Rumi poetry that's been translated by very learned scholars who have devoted their lives in uh, bo- studying both Farsi as well as uh, that the, the culture of Iran um, have done a beautiful job at translating Rumi. And I think millions of people around the world really, yeah, have been those introduced have, to it. Those who've had an opportunity to know several languages are probably very familiar with um, um, Wolfian's uh, concept that the more languages you know, mm-hmm. the richer your understanding is. Yes. Like, for instance, an Alaskan would have a much richer understanding of snow. Right. Because they use about 30 different words for snow. Incredible. Those who are in the Middle East have a much richer understanding of sand. Right. In the Arabic language, I understand there's as many as 15 words for sand. Right. You have taught 
cross-cultural psychology and psychology courses at large. And you've been in parts of the world where many of your students were from many parts of the world. What would be the richness of students who know different languages studying the same course? Yes, from students looking at you know, the psychologically related topics about human behavior, um, look through many different lenses and their own lenses, so their, their ethnocentric lenses of uh, how they've been socialized into understanding what personality means, what happiness means, what sadness means, what, you know, the, the emotions and the range of human behavior that we talk about in psychology and in psychologically related classes each one of those students coming from different cultural backgrounds will have their own experience with it. So one of the most uh, beautiful memories I have is of a Chinese student who I was passing in the hall, and my Chinese student said, hello, professor. I said, hello. He said, how are you? I said, fine, thank you. And he said, and I was about to elaborate on that, and he said, no, 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 no. You, you, when you ask in English, how are you, you're not really asking how I am. You just want a quick answer and, and for us to move on. Why is that? You know, in Chinese, when we ask how you are, we really want to know how you are, a detailed answer. And I thought about that for a minute. How many times a day we actually say, hey, how are you, you know, without actually expecting a long answer? Well, he turned around and said, in Chinese, we do a similar thing, but we, turn, we, we ask the question, have you had lunch yet? And we're not concerned about whether you've had lunch or not, <laughs> <laughs> but you just have to quickly say yes and then move on to the next subject. The obvious answer is yes or no. Yes. You can't elaborate on that. It's no. not likely somebody say, yes, and guess what I had for lunch? <laughs> yeah. And what did I drink while I was at it? Yeah. Semine Shaheem in The Psychologist Chair. We're going to be back in a few minutes in The Psychologist Chair. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking about cross-cultural psychology, the impact that it's having around the world. And by the way, what are happening to young people today around the world? Is it the same or is it different? Talk to you in a moment. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. As well as lecturing and counseling, Samina Shaheem's ongoing research, extending from her doctoral work, combines her psychology background and academic career. Being a cross-cultural psychologist and appreciating the importance of uncovering cultural similarities and differences in psychological traits and behaviors, she examines the identity transformation and the adaptation. Acculturation, a process of international students, especially now in the Arab Gulf region. Studying in the UK during a period of education, and upon return, we're continuing our conversation. Welcome back to the show, Simone Shaheem. Thank you very much. Teenagers. Yes. What a time to be one. Very difficult, yes. And, you know, this concept of teenagers, the adolescent, uh, the, the rude, obnoxious sort of, it's my life and I'll do what I want to do with it, um, getting into trouble, steering up, different uh, or getting involved in different forms of dysfunctional behavior. This is not something that we find across cultures. So this is predominantly uh, a situation which has arisen in the last, let's say, three decades maximum in the West. Uh, And in many parts of the world, adolescence is much shorter than we see it as in the Western societies, individualistic societies. So because the responsibility of moving from childhood into adulthood and the bridge between moving from childhood into adulthood is much shorter in many collectivist traditional type societies. Some societies require that their youth mature quickly and take more responsibility. Yes, absolutely. So from working in the familial business, um, so working on fields, whether it is uh, in farming or in production, or working in rural-type societies in which those youth are required to, once they have passed through puberty, to get married and to start another life. So the concept of adolescence from a Western point of view is very different than many other societies, yes. And it does change from country to country, and countries do, do continue to make changes as we even speak. Yep. There are exceptions to the rule. You're a resident right now in the United Arab Emirates, mm-hmm. a very global location. Some of the things that we would notice in other parts of the world may be different, much, much different in the United Arab Emirates because it is global. Yes. It is a transient kind of a community. You've taught at university. What kind of students do you find in the American universities that are here in the United Arab Emirates, for instance? Right. Well, here, since this country would be um, 
described as a collectivist society, as a traditional society, but purely because of what you've just mentioned, the different influences that we have from people from a wide range of nationalities who have come to work here, the children of Emiratis or the children of people from Arab or Iranian backgrounds, Indian, Filipino backgrounds, they've been interacting with one another since they were kids if they've lived here for a long time. Even if it's, you know, for a short period of time, they have teachers from different societies, different backgrounds, and that exposure in influences who they are. So when you say a classroom, a, a classroom, a college classroom in the United Arab Emirates, which is probably made up of about seven to ten different nationalities, those students have grown up in a very diverse society in itself. So the Arab individual or the Arab student has been living and being been friends with English people, with American people, have maybe adopted certain uh, behaviors or attitudes and habits from those interactions that they've had, very different because of the heterogeneous sort of nature of the society over here. What we do find, though, through globalization and through global mixing and migration and interacting through media, lots of the problems that we've experienced in the West have also now uh, been seen over here in the United Arab Emirates or other collectivist societies, such as an overall lack of respect for authority, conduct problems in schools as, as, as early as uh, children who are five or six years old who are not respecting teachers, uh, children who are now talking back to parents and saying things like, you know, I will respect you only when you have earned my respect, whereas previously this was not the case. There was a clear understanding of power differences amongst people, especially amongst parents and children, uh, and now there seems to be a dilution of that and a deterioration of both respect as well as uh, a respect for authority. Are you seeing that there may be more difficulty in the future as a result of that? Is this a passing that will kind of balance out later? Well, not naturally, I think, unless we realize that this notion that was introduced a few decades ago of trying to be more democratic with our children, trying to be more friends with our children, has somewhat, in not all situations, but in a majority of cases that we come across, we've seen that it's backfired because you cannot be friends with your child. You can engage in fun activities, in friendly type uh, sort of activities and events. But you, you can't be friends with your child because children will not allow their friends to discipline them. And so if you're friends with your child, then what happens to the disciplinarian role? You need to have that the boundaries. There needs to be structure. There's got to be consistency in laying down rules and regulations for the child to for the for the children to follow, or else it just goes it's absolute chaos. One of the observations is that sometimes Americans, British, other Europeans, Can Canadians will allow their children to call elders by their first name. Yes. In cultures that are more Eastern style of living, that is never going to be allowed. No. The first name of an, of a, an adult is uncle. Yes. That is their first name mm -hmm. or aunt mm -hmm. or a or respectful title. Yeah. You know, or their, their respectful title. Also, it seems that that does have quite an influence. However, many will argue that if you're allowed to 
speak on an equal footing, you're more likely to be honest. However, I don't know that that is a correct analysis, simply because you can still be honest and be respectful. The disrespectability that comes from that is maybe the fact that no one's ever taught children to be responsible. Right. Yeah. To I, be respectful. I agree. Definitely. Now, that could go into a very, very depth conversation. Mm-hmm. And that in-depth conversation will bring in many, many cultural aspects. Because mm-hmm. when we talk about culture, and, and please clarify the definition, we're talking about Everything. the way people think, right. the way that they practice their religion, their educational system. Mm-hmm. Culture is a global term. Yes, it is. The way people understand the world around them. It's, it's the way we do things around here. So the way we do things around here affects everything. Education, the arts, music, clothing, um, food, birth, deaths. It does impact a wide range of uh, human experiences that we have. But this notion of respect uh, starts right from birth, you see, when and, and, and culture impacts child-rearing practices right from birth. So if we look at as a child is growing up, the child is taught, how do you address your mother? How do you address your father? How do you address your grandparents, uncles and aunts, and the neighbor? And the child will soon learn what is the power distance? Is there an a, a, a big gap of power distance between the child and the people that they're interacting with? Or is there a smaller gap? When is it appropriate to use first name? When is it not? In many languages around the world, they have a particular grammar for addressing people of higher authority. We don't have that in English. So in French and German and Spanish, for example, Arabic and Farsi, you actually change the grammatical structure of the sentences in order to address people of higher authority. And uh, so children grow up with this. It's, it's, it's very much embedded in their values of how to address their parents. In your cultural research, what would be the benefit of having that kind of respectability practiced day to day? Maybe some of this is the research that you're aware of, some of maybe your own experiences in university. Yes, yes. And I'm sure with the many students that you've taught, you would see clear differences in how people behave mm-hmm. because of the way they're taught at home and the outcome of their effectiveness, productivity, whether it's academic or in the work world. Yes. What are some of your experiences with this? And how have the students behaved and what was the results of their behavior? Well, what I've noticed is that when you give children, and that's what adolescents still essentially are, they're not adults yet, when you give them too much responsibility or accountability or you expect them uh, to make decisions, being aware of the consequences of those decisions without guiding them, without providing a proper Uh, discipline and boundaries for those actions, it's likely that they're going to make a mistake because they're not the consequences cognitively. It hasn't been hardwired yet for them to realize the damaging impact that their experiments is going to have on their developmental process, right? So we can't give them too much responsibility too soon. On another level, if you look at if we do instill values in our children, in our adolescents, to respect Parents, what we're saying is trust me. Trust me in that 
I'm older, I have more experience, and trust me when I guide you in this particular manner or in this particular issue that I know what's best for you. Not give that trust to the adolescent in that you are a person yourself, yes, he or she is, and that you should make a decision by yourself. They're not ready to make such decisions. And so when they have respect for the authority figure, for the parent, in effect, what they're doing is trusting them in, in, in listening to what they're being told or how they're being guided in order to help protect them. So what you're basically saying, if I might be so um, bold to impose, is that when teenagers get into trouble, sometimes you have to treat the parents to cure the child. 100%. I agree completely. So parenting is not for cowards. No, definitely not. Parents have to be very directly involved, whether it's their children watching television, listening to music, know who they're going out with. Don't let them go out until you know who they're going out with. Yeah, but how many parents do you know that are involved in their children's lives nowadays? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in the next segment because it's very important for parents to be actively involved. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden with Semine Shaheem in the psychologist's chair. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you. Every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist's Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. We're back in the psychologist's chair with Semine Shaheem. Her particular area of expertise is in relation to consulting business and academic institutions, as well as individuals and matters regarding cultural adaptation, transition, acculturation, and many other aspects as adjustment, culture shock, and things that we're going to talk about right now concerning 
young people who are too old to be children and still too young to be adults. One of the things that we're seeing today is many teenagers are not even having a chance to be youth. They're moving from puberty to adultery real quick. Yes. Your comments. Yes, definitely. Uh, we need to give them time to adjust uh, both physiologically and psychologically. Parents need to be more responsible and more involved. There is much to be said about a democratic style of, 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 of being, um, of, of parenting to be democratic in that way. But there are certain issues and times in which one needs to be slightly more authoritarian, to set boundaries, to be consistent with those boundaries. So if you have prohibited a particular behavior, if you've said that it's important for you not to watch more than two hours of TV a week, let's say, or to be on one of those consoles or um, you know, playstations and so on, one has to stick to those rules because if not, then the child learns to push boundaries further and further and they'll take advantage of this, uh, not learning the consistency of what is required for them to uh, or to, for them to behave in a certain way. Parents also need to be more involved. So who are the children interacting with, as you mentioned? Uh, who are their friends? What kind of people are they? Previously, living in the same city, usually the kids would be playing with kids who went to the same school. Their parents were probably neighbors of yours, used to interact with them, socialize with them as well. Now, in especially individualistic Western societies, we may never ever meet the parent uh, of the child that our, friend, that our child is best friends with. So it might be that we never interact with them, but it's important to make that phone call, to get to know them, to realize, you know, what does their house look like? What what do they get up to for the two, three, four hours that they are um, at that person's house? So to be involved more. There's a lot of games now that young people can play. As a matter of fact, what we're finding is adults continue those even as they move into a professional life. Yes. They go back home, they're on their TV screen, but playing certain games that are very aggressive, mm -hmm. a lot of profanity, Violence. very sexual, violent kinds of things that are yeah. going on. And also there's communications verbally with people around the world while you're playing that game. So you can actually use that game as a social network. Yes. What we're finding with young teenagers today, those who have not matured, as you're pointing out very correctly, to handle these kinds of scenarios unsupervised, they become very aggressive. Mm -hmm. Even to the point where you say, okay, it's time to come to dinner. I'll be there in a minute. Right. But no, I need you to come now. Don't talk to me right now. I'm very busy doing this. And they've become very aggressive, very hostile, which is nothing different than what Albert Bandora talks about in social learning, learning theory. theory. Right. And that got replicated with showing children of the age of eight three minutes of an aggressive program, mm -hmm. another group of three, a third graders, eight-year-old, uh, Lassie movie, mm -hmm. if you remember the old Lassie sure. movies. Sure, yeah. And then after those three minutes, both groups of kids were put out on the playground. And even with just three minutes, those who were shown the aggressive program behaved aggressively on the playground. Right. Those who were shown the pleasant, cooperative, harmonious program behaved such on the playground. Not every child who sees bad television or plays bad games is going to behave badly. But what's interesting is that 
less than 10% of those young people who commit crimes, seemingly all were correlated back to media, mm-hmm. where violent programming produced violent behavior. Now, the research on this is quite fluent. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing today is that children all around the world are exposed to very similar situations. Yeah, whether it, if it's through movies or the games, as you mentioned, yeah. You pointed out earlier in today's program that there's a difference in the way people from certain cultures around the world raise their children. They give them a sense of independence, but it's with being respectful to their elders. Well, you get that same sense of independence, not because you're being disrespectful, but there's less of a power distance in other cultures. Yes. Some would argue there are some nations who tend to be quite individualistic and have been very, very successful. Mm -hmm. But then there's also proof that nations who are collective in their ideology and practice are also successful, but in different ways. What is going on with teenagers today around the world? Because now we're seeing more similarity Mm -hmm. because of media, because of transportation. It's no longer that the only person you know is the person who's from your hometown in high school. Yes. You're in your hometown in high school, and you can still know people who are halfway around the world without even knowing them. Right. And, of course, we're seeing the scams where a dirty old person can behave as a young, gentle, sweet person to influence young people who are innocent and inexperienced Mm -hmm. into doing bad things. If you ruled the world, President Shaheem, you're the cross-cultural psychologist, you're ruling the world, what would you do to continue the progress but yet stabilize what seems to be so non-stable? Well, if we look back to pre-migration times, of course, there never is such a thing. But again, in the last couple of decades, there's so much migration and global mixing. But if we look pre to that, where societies were predominantly of one particular cultural background, child rearing practices worked because the way you raise that child Whether it was different from the neighboring nation, it didn't matter because for the population of that country, for the people who live there, it worked. It means that if I came from a collectivist background, what I would do was would instill collectivist values into that child as they're growing up to be able to participate into that society. What we're finding now is that parents are confused because there's so much movement, so many different value systems that we're uh, confronted by, that we travel and we live in different societies. If I come from a collectivist Middle Eastern background and I move to live in California, for example, and my child in the public sphere of life and during his or her secondary socialization is interacting with American children, that's a delicate balance of trying to preserve the primary socialization or values from my country of origin, as well as providing the right skills and teaching that child what he or she should know to be able to survive in the new cultural context that they're living in. So it's no good trying to hang on to the old values only, and it's no good either completely rejecting our values from country of origin. It's a very delicate balance of the two. I think what I would do is think about where am I living? First important question to ask, where am I living and what works here? 
in this cultural context. If I am living in an individualistic society, what could I adopt from the individualistic society that has been proved to be beneficial either through the experience of others or through research that I have come across or even going and speaking to a psychologist about it to understand how could I better balance the collectivism and individualism which everyone has within themselves. So, I, for example, a positive attribute or dimension of an individualistic cultural identity is that they're creative, they're unique, uh, they make decisions based on their own opinion and judgment, and they don't have to be influenced or bullied, if you will, mm -hmm. by other members of the family. So that's something that's positive that we should learn from the individualistic society. From the collectivist side, we should probably look at the way in which uh, people from a collectivist culture have so much respect for one another, have so much respect for their neighbor and their extended family members that they help one another. There's much more cooperation and helping behavior involved. So as a president, I would try and highlight what we have learned from these different Uh, value systems from individualism on one end, because as you know, it's on a continuum. There's no country or person that's purely individualistic or pure, purely collectivist. So I would look at this continuum of individualism and collectivism, look at the positive outcomes or positive attributes that we could all learn from, and to instill that into our children as we're raising them in these very diverse societies that we live in. So it would be safe to say then, if you presided over this planet of seven billion people, it's impossible for seven billion people to be of one cultural identity. I agree. Yeah, it would be I impossible. was agreeing with you. Yes. <laughs> so I agree back. Uh, I think so. I think it, it just would not be possible. And And why should it be the case? Why not? appreciate and embrace and amalgamate these influences because not only do we have to take into account cultural differences, don't forget history is an important variable here as well. If we look back a hundred years back, the adolescent, even in the United States in that context, was a very different behavioral creature than the adolescent we see today. So taking from different cultural contexts as well as point in history would be an interesting uh, sort of mix of, of, of value systems. There's a lot to be learned from each culture. And I remember teaching an ethics class in one of the universities, and I asked the students of different languages to group and define morals and ethics. One of the students was Greek. Mm -hmm. I was so happy that we would have a Greek student who would educate us on more Greek terminology that we learned throughout school. He came back and only word, wrote the word ethos on the board. And I said, what about the other word? He said, well, we Greeks have no morals, <laughs> only ethics. <laughs> we'll yeah. be back in just a few moments. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and with us, Semine Shaheen in the psychologist chair. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. Best. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest best talk 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 that's all we do is talk if you'd like to talk call us toll free right now at 1-866-472-5787 that's it that's it voiceamerica.com You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. In the Psychologist Chair for the last segment today is Semine Shaheem, who's an author of two books The Karma Hotel and The Gift of Sir. Being Farsi-speaking, define the word sir. Sir means a secret to consciousness. And believe it or not, in the middle of my writing my doctorate dissertation, I wanted to escape the scientific, uh, cut-and-dry, methodological system uh, that is required for someone to engage in that practice. And for, uh, for about, I think it was a month or two, I just wanted to write poetry. I just wanted to write about butterflies and unicorns and you know rainbows and, and things like that. So this was born, uh, The Gift of Sir was born uh, in the middle of doing my doctorate research with a student of mine uh, that was also interested in doing this as a project. So she contributed her poetry as I did. And The Gift of Sir is a gift of a an opening or a door towards the inner consciousness. So to be able to express things that you feel on an unconscious level uh, through the arts, such as poetry and uh, or drawings or paintings and things like that. So it's a book of poetry. Here the word sir is spelt S-I-double-R. That's right. And that gives it the more correct pronunciation in Farsi. Is this book purchasable at yes, this time? Yes, it is. Yes, Amazon, uh, the, the, the bookstores, all bookstores online, and then uh, different bookstores that have ordered it or not. I'm not aware exactly how that works, but online, certainly, it's possible to order The Karma Hotel and The Gift of Sir. Tell yes. us about Karma Hotel. The Karma Hotel uh, is also something that has psychological uh, threads woven throughout uh, its theme and its, its main um, premise. However, it's not meant for a psychologically related audience. It could Anybody could pick up the book and enjoy it. Uh, it 
does take into account different cultural value systems and different influences about four people who have different issues and challenges and obstacles in their lives, but they haven't been able to find earthly explanations as to why they're going through these challenges. So by different means, they get invited to this place known as the Karma Hotel, an undisclosed location, so we don't know where it is exactly. And once they stay in the Karma Hotel and the uh, experience that they have there, the adventure that they have there, they realize that some of the things that they're or the challenges that they're facing is as a result of uh, issues in their past or even further than their past, so their past lives. You're not old enough to have written for Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> but it does sound yeah. like one of his hotels. Yeah, it does it. The Karma Hotel. Um, I love Alfred Hitchcock. One of my probably influencing uh, artists, I would Obviously. say. Yes, yes. How many siblings do you have? Two, my Are sister. they in the same field as you? No, not at all. Uh, not at all. So we could go see a movie, let's say The Incredible Hawk, and I'd be analyzing the oppression and the marginalization of the big green guy, you know, and my sister would say, Sammy Nash, just a big guy wearing ripped shorts, okay? <laughs> no, not at all. My brother falling asleep on the other chair. Um, no, my, my brother is uh, into security systems, uh, and he lives and works in California. And my sister is an arts fund manager, so in investment, art investment. Both uh, your brother and your sister and you did not follow in the same line of business as your parents. No, we didn't either. My mother is an interior decorator, a fashion designer, and my father is in, in insurance. And that's quite a common practice for many people from the Iranian community who actually reside in the Middle East. Yes. Insurance yes. is a big number. Yes, but no one does it as well as my father, I, I must say. Of course. Of course not. <laughs> what was your dad doing in Iran before the problems there? Insurance. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So he's just, he studied it. He studied at London School of Economics, and he really believes that when you're good at something, don't jump from one branch to another. Uh, after the revolution, many different job opportunities were offered to him. He said, no, absolutely not. If I'm not going to stay in my own field, then I'm not going to succeed. So uh, just worked very hard at remaining in his field and had has been doing that and still is working today. In the United States and some other parts of the world, but we'll talk about the United States, not primarily, but just as a subject matter, many people may have a poor impression of Iran and Iranians mm -hmm. because of politics and, and, of course, media. Yes. What is it you want to tell people around the world about the goodness around the world? First of all, um, I haven't had the chance or the opportunity to grow up in Iran, So, uh, but I have very close ties with relatives, and I don't claim to understand the suffering that many people have experienced uh, living in conditions that for many of us is un incomprehensible. So I don't claim to understand what they've gone through, but nevertheless, through different conversations or things that we've all read, um, what I would like to say is let's not try and judge a group of individuals or a population of individuals uh, for things that they may not be responsible for and that they may not have a choice. And in, in many 
situations, both cultural and national, there's a big divide between how the people feel and how their ruling body feels. And there might be a big chasm, a big gap between that. They may have nothing in common. So um, I, I think Iranian, the Iranian population, especially those living in the diaspora, have been incredibly successful. We refer to them as silent minorities because when they live in communities and they go to universities and they work, they're very successful and they contribute very effectively. Uh, but unfortunately, Iran has experienced this brain drain as a result. So everyone or those people who are competent and have, are ambitious and competitive now reside outside. And those who remain in the country have to live under very difficult conditions. In every country, in every culture, there's going to be good people and bad people. Absolutely. However you want to define that, we're not going to get into in this show. Yes. But you'll find that many times people will get a misunderstanding and they'll categorize people very wrongly. Mm -hmm. And that's quite unfortunate because it does affect negatively the good people of that location. Yes. When people are placed outside of their culture for political reasons, that must have quite a devastating effect. And how close is it then that they embrace the new culture? The new culture meaning where they, where the host country? To, yes, yes, where they've had to move to. Yeah, I think age is an important variable here. So many of the Iranians living in the diaspora, Dr. Hamdan, will have their um, suitcases for the last 30, 35 years. They would have a room with their suitcases packed, convinced that they're going back tomorrow. So under this uh, hope that it's, things will change and they can return back home. Uh, the older they are, the more difficult it is for them to adapt and to learn the language of that society or the cultural value systems. For the my generation, what was very difficult was negotiating the values of my parents and that of the societies that I was living in. So trying to balance what it means to be Iranian as well as embracing individualistic Western-type values. Uh, very hard for our generation, as well as being third-culture kids kids uh, not fitting in in any one particular area, but as well being a combination of these different cultural influences. So when you're with Americans, you're not really an American. And when you're with Iranians, you're not really Iranian. Um, and so somewhere along that line, it, it, it can be if you don't have a strong parental uh, support system and a confidence and self-esteem, it can be very challenging. Yeah. So we see that people around the world want to thrive. They yeah. want to be cooperative. They want to live in harmony. Semine Shaheem, this year you'll get your doctor's degree. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us this week for In the Psychologist's Chair. Please join Dr. Raymond Hamden for another edition next Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we speak again, hope you enjoy your week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.